If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 19, please. Revelation 19, we're going to be looking tonight at verses 6 to 10, which say this, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you for your people who've come out tonight to partake of it. We pray that you would bless our time, make it profitable in personal ways, practical ways, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. There have been some monumental praise services, and there's been some monumental parades in this country. After World War I, there was a victorious parade that took place in New York City that was attended by about 50,000 people. After World War II ended, there was a victorious parade that took place again in New York that was attended by about 2 million people. And one of the biggest parades ever to occur in the United States, believe it or not, was a parade that occurred on November 4, 2016. It was a seven-mile route parade that traveled down Michigan Avenue and Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. It was a parade that occurred when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. It's estimated that five million people lined the streets to see that parade. So having a parade is something that does happen every now and then when there's been some major victory. But I tell you this, the most spectacular parade of all, the most spectacular parade of all, that will be like something that is literally out of this world, will be when Jesus Christ returns, when he's destroyed all evil, and he comes back and he takes over the world. What a parade that is going to be. And there has never been, nor will there ever be another parade like this. It will be a parade that starts in heaven, ends up on earth. Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to take over the world, and this parade is going to feature all of these heavenly rejoicing services where people are just breaking out in these hallelujah praise services. It's going to be a glorious event. It's a one-time moment. It's never going to happen again, but when it does happen, it's going to be spectacular. And what we see tonight is the glorious spectacular return of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be preceded by a series of hallelujah worship praise services in heaven. Now, it's just so fascinating to me because we saw earlier in chapter 18 that the music has stopped on earth. That music that's been playing in the world for hundreds and thousands of years, it's all done. But when the music stopped on earth, it's full speed ahead in heaven. There's just a lot of singing. There's just a lot of rejoicing. There's going to be a, as I would call it, a major crescendo development of praise and worship that's going to take place that will set stage for the greatest moment in the history of this world, which will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes, it's not going to be a quiet coming. He's coming in all of his spectacular glory to take over the world. That's going to be preceded by these praise services. And we saw last time praise service number one. The first praise service was 
a rejoicing service for the saints and the apostles and prophets because God had specifically poured out tribulation judgment just for them. That's the way they viewed it. Babylon had been destroyed. Babylon had fallen. The whole system was gone. The false religious system was gone. The false political system was gone. The false commercial power was gone economically. And as a result of that, they're praising the Lord in heaven. The second praise service was a hallelujah service that occurred with a great multitude in heaven because God's judgments had been avenged the blood of his bondservants. There were a lot in heaven who had been martyred, especially during that first part of the tribulation period, all throughout the tribulation period, really. And so they broke out in a praise service as a prelude to the second coming of Christ when he's going to take over the world. They realized the, the significance of the fact that he stamped out evil and is in the process of ending all of this. Which brought us to the third praise service, which was a hallelujah, truly amen worship service that occurred with the 24 elders and four living creatures. Now they're praising God simply because the others are praising God for judgment. As I view this chronologically, they were not involved in the first two hallelujah choruses. So they decide at this point we're having our own. So what we saw last time is that these 24 elders and these living creatures, they decided we're joining in with them. I mean, they're all praising the Lord for what he's doing and what Jesus Christ is about to do. So we're going to join in with them. And then we saw the fourth praise service, and that fourth praise service was praise offered to God by all bond servants who fear the Lord small and great. Those who had been rewarded, those that didn't receive rewards, they're all there, and it was a spectacular moment that occurred when John saw this praise service, which is the fourth one, and it's another hallelujah service. So what we have here are these spectacular praise services that take place just before the biggest and the greatest and the most majestic event ever to hit this world. Hallelujah. It's a praise for God's judgment and punishment of the wicked, and Christ is about to come. Now that brings us to the fifth praise service. This is all a crescendo leading to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when we sing hymns before we look into the Word of God. I mean, it kind of builds till you look into the Word of God. I mean, this is all that. It's singing hymns as a moment that's going to introduce Jesus Christ to the world in all of his glory. And this fifth praise service is this hallelujah praise service of this great multitude. And I want you to notice how verse 6 begins. Then. Then. So what that tells us is this is very sequential and consecutive. What John is giving us here is precise chronology. These hallelujah praise services are going down in rapid fire speed and sequence. Just as the music in the world has stopped, it's just lit up heaven. The music of heaven is on full display and they are singing the praises. And John says, after this, then after this, I heard something. John said, I heard this. And what I heard was the sound of a great multitude. And he says, I heard the sound of the voice of a great multitude. It's interesting because he doesn't use the plural voices. He said, I heard the voice of a great multitude, which would indicate to us there's a tremendous unity to this choir. I mean, there's a tremendous unity to what this multitude is singing. The voice was booming. It was majestic. It was sounding like a roaring thunder. For the first time in world history, think about this, for the first time in world history, God in the person of Jesus Christ is going to come back and take over this world he created. No wonder there's this unified wonderful praise that's being sung by this great multitude in heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, 
There's nothing wrong with loud, robust singing. In fact, at one time, in fact, I think it was this text that prompted him to do it. He kind of chided his congregation. He said, I don't want to hear him sung here that just drag on like there's no emotion in it. He said, I don't want it. That isn't worship. He said, when we worship God, there should be a unity of singing these hymns. I was very encouraged today by the singing of this congregation. It was just the kind of thing that pleases the Lord. And so John says, I heard that. I heard the voice. It was like one voice, one choir. And I heard them sing. And I heard what they were saying, what they were singing. They had eight messages. Number one, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Judgment has come. The final judgment has come. And he's about to come. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Secondly, praise the Lord because the Lord reigns. I want you to look at the language here that is coming out of heaven concerning the sovereignty of God. He's being worshipped for this, by the way. I'll tell you what, there'll be no quibbling about the sovereignty of God when people are in heaven. They realize it's God who's sovereign. The Lord reigns. Message number three, our God reigns. Message number four, praise the Lord because the Almighty reigns. The Omnipotent One reigns. The stress here in heaven at this singing is this is almighty God here. Almighty God. And he is coming to take over this world and he's going to be worshipped as almighty God. This sloppy business of trying to bring God down to our level like as we've said before like our buddy, just our buddy with us. It's just it's lunacy and certainly not worthy of what God would classify as worship. The fifth message is, let us rejoice. The sixth message, let us be glad. The seventh message, let us give glory to him. And let us do this, number eight, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. I want you to notice, let us rejoice. Let us be glad. What are they rejoicing over? What are they glad at? They're glad about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has just stamped out evil. They're glad about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has just eliminated evil from the earth and he's coming back in all of his glory. They are happy about that. And then he says, let us do this because the marriage of the Lamb has come. This will be the most glorious moment for the church that the church of God has ever experienced. What a moment this is going to be, this marriage supper of the Lamb. When you think about the numbers of people who actually are involved in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and actually serious about the Word of God, the numbers are low now. They're pretty low. We have in this church, I was just going through some numbers that we have people that we can name, about 450 to 500 people that are connected to this fellowship, and that's a healthy number. I mean, there are a lot of churches that would love to have that as a number base, which God has been gracious to us in giving us this number, but we're not a mega church. I mean, we're certainly by not any stretch of the imagination a mega church. And so when you look at the numbers of people today who make up the church that really love the Lord and they really love the word, the numbers aren't good. I tell you this, this will be a moment, the most glorious moment for the true church of God they have ever experienced. And it is called in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb. It's called in verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what this refers to is Jesus Christ is going to gather his bride. He's going to gather the church. And I think it is a reference to the church. And he's going to bring them back with him in all of his glory. And this is going to be preceded by these great praise services. 
Now, I want to analyze this for a moment, this business of the marriage of the Lamb, and I want to do this in question-answer form. And the first question I want to ask is, what is the marriage of the Lamb? Well, if you look at verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. According to verse 7, we would say the marriage of the Lamb is the moment before Christ returns to earth when the bride is presented to the Lamb. This is a great moment, the greatest moment. For all of us, it'll be the most formal wedding that's ever existed. When we will be presented to Jesus Christ, there will be great formality to this. It's going to be in heaven. The second question is, who's the bride being presented to the lamb? Because what we learn is there's a bride. His bride has made herself ready. Well, Jesus Christ often referred to himself as the bridegroom in multiple passages, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and also in John and John identified the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3 as being the bridegroom. And so he's the bridegroom. So who's the bride? Well, there are some ways that we can identify her here. And I think we can make clear who she is. First of all, she is called the bride. That's obvious. And the text says, and his bride made herself ready. Now, Israel in the Old Testament is never called a bride. She's referred to as a wife and an unfaithful wife. So she's never called a bride. And if you want a text to reference that, Ezekiel 16, there's a good passage of Scripture. We're not going to go there tonight, but there's a good text of Scripture which would reference the fact that she's called an unfaithful wife. The church is like, I would say we're kind of like a fiancé now. I mean, we are the bride of Christ, but we really haven't gone through the specifics of the marital relationship that we're going to go through at this moment. I mean, this will be the moment that culminates. We're kind of in a relationship with the Lord where we're like a fiancé bride. I mean, that kind of the state that we find ourselves in tonight. And by virtue of the fact that we conclude this is a reference to the church, then I think what he's basically saying here is this is the moment when the bride, the church, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who make up the church are going to be presented to the Lamb, to the Lord. Now, I do not for the life of me, understand denominationalism. In fact, I have to tell you, it just troubles me. It troubles me. Why someone would join a denomination, I don't get it. It doesn't register in my brain. I'm not saying that people that do it are not loving people who love the Lord, but I don't get it. I can't understand why someone would want to join a denomination when you look into the scriptures and you're going, there's one bride here. It's not subdivided groups. Well, we've got the Baptist and the Reformed and the Christian Reformed, and we've got the Methodists and the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. It's not a subdivided group here. It's one bride. How in the world someone can ever be a part of denomination? It's beyond me. I don't get it. But I do know this. It's the family of God, the church of God. She's the bride. The second way she's identified is she made herself ready. Verse 7 says she is the bride who has made herself ready. The bride has prepared herself. She made herself ready when she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all. And that happened by grace. In fact, it was God who reached into the lives of every single one who are in his family and brought them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I like something Dr. S. Lewis Johnson said about this. There are people that say that we have a free will. He said, I like to call it freed will, freed will. And he said, what I mean by that is we were born 
with a will that was alienated from God. In fact, we were born dead in sin. We were born with a will that wouldn't even choose God. So what God did is he stepped into our will and into our minds and into our hearts and he turned on the bulbs, as it were, and we came under conviction and we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and we were saved. And that was what began the process of making ourselves ready for this spectacular moment, the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we focus on the scriptures and we apply the scriptures and that makes us ready. And then we've been through the Bema Seat Judgment. In other words, what we will experience here after going through this process of having been saved and having been studying the word and applying the word and having gone to the Bema Seat Judgment is we will experience the wonderful privilege of being introduced to the bridegroom as his bride. The third way that she's introduced is she's given fine linen clothing. Verse 8 says, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Let's just look a minute at what that harlot was wearing. Go back to chapter 17. What a contrast you're going to see in clothing. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So there is this woman who is the Babylonian harlot, and now you get a contrast to the people of God. The people of God in heaven, and they're wearing fine linen, fine linen, which means that they have fine linen that is a priestly kind of linen. It was based on the fact that they had done righteous acts after they had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd been involved in serving the Lord and loving the Lord, and they have this priestly element to them. They're wearing fine linen. They have been given, fourthly, clothing that's bright and clean. That's what verse 8 says, and bright and clean. Those are interesting words because the word bright would indicate that this clothing that they're wearing is a reflection of the glory of God, the shining glory of God. It's bright. And by virtue of the fact it's said to be clean, We know that this represents total purity. In other words, what you have here in this bride, which includes everyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no tarnish, you have no sin, you have no dirt, you have no filth. It's clean, it's clear. And fifthly, she has been given clothing based on the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, works don't mean anything for an unbeliever, but works do mean something for a believer. And once you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you can lay up treasures in heaven. Works do nothing for an unbeliever except add up more sin and give them a bigger account of their filthy rags works. But once you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been justified, you now begin the process of developing for the glory of God and laying up treasures in heaven. And when it comes to our relationship with God, there are two kinds of righteousness. You have imputed righteousness, and we've been seeing that in Romans, a righteousness that's not our own. We've been given that righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It's been judicially imputed to us when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that in Romans and in Philippians when he says, that righteousness was not my own righteousness, it was his righteousness. But then we have what's called practical righteousness after justification. A practical sanctification, a progressive sanctification in which we govern our lives by the word of God and we are involved in the kinds of 
things that do lay up treasures in heaven. Now this clothing is actually clothing based on the righteous acts of the saints. So this will be clothing that will be given that's consistent with how the word of God was studied and implied. And there's an article, the, before the noun righteous, another one before saints. So we may conclude that each piece of this linen and each piece of these garments that are handed out to the bride of the lamb are based on this. They're based on this. And after John had heard this, verse 9 says, Then he said to me, that's this angel said to him, Right. Right. It's amazing to me how many times we've seen, as we've gone through this book of Revelation, the admonition given to John to write. Jesus Christ told him to do it in chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 19. He was told again to write in chapter 14, verse 13, and told again here in chapter 19 and verse 9. He'll be told it one more time in chapter 21, verse 5. So after John had heard all of this, he's told to write, and he's told to write, apparently, by the same angel is telling him to write, which tells us this. God says, I want my written word taken seriously and studied carefully because in this I am laying out my prophetic program. And he said, I want you to write two statements. The first one is, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is another one of those beatitude benefit blessings. That's what this is. And this marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be the best banquet and best party that has ever been in existence. It is going to be spectacular. In fact, I know from John's response here that it must be just something to see, something to experience, because we'll see what he does here in just a moment. Now, what's stated here is those that are invited to this are blessed. And when we examine the parallel passages about the invitation to come to the wedding feast, the emphasis is on the Gentiles and not the Jews. In other words, he came to his own Israel, and he went to Israel. They rejected him, so he said, I want you to invite those that are the down-and-out Gentile people, invite them to come to this wedding feast, because they'll come to it. The nation Israel had rejected him. So this does have church-age ramifications in this invitation to this marriage supper. And the vast amount of people who will be the bride of Christ who are given this invitation to come to this particular banquet, this marriage supper of the Lamb, are going to be Gentile believers. Oh, there'll be some Jewish believers that will be there, but they will not be the vast majority. In fact, the apostles are all Jewish, but the vast majority of those people are going to be those who were Gentile. Now, in verse 7, we have the bride clothing for the marriage of the Lamb, and in verse 9, we're introduced to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what is the marriage supper of the Lamb? The marriage supper of the Lamb will be the moment when Jesus Christ takes his church bride from heaven back to earth to reign with him. Everyone is going to see this. I mean, this is going to be one moment. It is possible, since every eye will see this, that he's going to actually take this procession, this massive procession around the world. There'd be nothing for him to do that. I mean, already he's been doing spectacular things in the sky, so it would be nothing for the people that are still surviving on earth to look up in the sky and see this majestic display of this bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, leading this massive parade, as it were, of believers from all ages and circling the earth. 
Now, in the first century wedding ceremony, there were three, actually about four main parts to it. First of all, there was the father's house where the bride lived. And so a groom would go to the father's house and pay a dowry to the father, and then he would go to prepare a home for the daughter that he intended to go back and get someday. Then, number two, there was a route of travel from the father's house to the groom's house. The groom would come get the bride, and there would be a procession. I mean, this is quite an impressive ceremony that took place when he would go back and get the bride, and then they would make this procession and follow him to his house from the father's house to his house. Then there would be this marriage feast, which was a huge festival that would go on for many days. And for most people in the first century, it was the best, best meal they ever had. They'd look forward to something like this. This would be the most spectacular party that they would ever attend. And so they would follow the wedding couple and they would make the trip from the father's house to the groom's house. And then they would go there and they would have this festival for many days. And then they would ultimately, the couple would go off to consummate the marriage. Now, those events are critical to what is happening here. Because Jesus Christ paid the redemptive price and dowry to the Father for his bride, which is the church. He came to this earth and he went to the cross. He made the payment. Then he presently has gone back to heaven and is at his Father's home while his bride is basically remained here on earth. And so right now he's preparing that place. And we know he said that in the Gospel of John. I go to prepare a place for you. So I'm going to leave earth now, go to prepare a place for you. But I'm coming back to get you. That's what he also said in John chapter 14. Then Jesus Christ officially comes for his bride at the rapture of the church. We covered that in our previous studies. We'll be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be. Then Jesus Christ took his bride to his father's house at the rapture, and there has been a seven-year time of fellowship and feasting after the rapture. This has been going on for seven years while the tribulation has been going on on earth. There's been this other side of the coin that's been taking place in heaven, and then Jesus Christ is going to consummate this relationship by bringing his bride back with him to earth to reign with him. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's exactly what it is. And to be invited to travel back to earth with Jesus Christ for his kingdom reign, what a wonderful, wonderful privilege that will be. To actually be invited or have an invitation to come back with Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Now one question that does arise from this text is, would it be possible for a believer in heaven not to be invited to return? Would it be possible for a believer who believed in the Lord, received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and goes to be with the Lord, would it be possible for that believer not to be invited to return with the Lord to reign with him? On the one hand, in verse 7, we read about the bride who is ready to meet the Lamb. And in verse 9, we read of the blessing of one who's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, we would say, is it possible one could be a believer in the family of God in heaven, but then not be invited to come back to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ on earth? That's a perplexing question. The Bible never challenges an unbeliever to do any good works. In fact, good works, as we pointed out, are as filthy rags. The Bible challenges every unbeliever to do one thing, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the challenge that the Bible gives to every person who is not saved. It's entirely different for a believer. A believer has a responsibility to present himself a living sacrifice. 
A believer has a responsibility to flee immorality and be obedient to the word of God so that we will not, as Hebrews says, fall short of entering the final rest of God. You don't want to end up shortchanged when you get before the Lord. And if we're to reign with Jesus Christ, we must be found faithful. We must hold fast our assurance through a life of faithfulness so that we may receive full reward. All who remain faithful will share in the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. But what if you didn't remain faithful? What if you were a believer and you had your ticket to heaven, you have the righteousness of God, but you didn't remain faithful? Would you be invited to come on this tremendous, epic moment to come back with the Lord Jesus Christ? In Paul's writings, there are specific things that he names that he seems to suggest have something to do with us receiving or not receiving an inheritance. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says those believers who pursue a life of immorality and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and thievery and covetousness and drunkenness or swindling will not receive a reward inheritance. In Galatians 5.21, a determining factor for a believer to receive an inheritance will be one who did not allow the flesh to dominate but allowed the Holy Spirit to dominate their lives. We saw that this morning in Romans. In Ephesians 5, 5, a believer who pursues a life of immorality, impurity, covetousness, or idolatry will not receive an inheritance. And then you have that statement in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, that a believer who pursues a godless life will suffer consequences, and one of the consequences will be they will not see the Lord. Now, I've been on both sides of the coin on this argument. There's a book that's written, a great, great theological book that's written, actually, that really stretches you on this. It's called The Reign of the Servant Kings. And that particular book takes the position that a believer could believe in the Lord and be in heaven and not be invited back on this deal. But Mr. Miles took a different position. We discussed this point thoroughly, and he took a different position when he said, I don't think that the Lord Jesus would leave part of his family in heaven and just bring a quarter of it back. He said the family's going to be together. It's the bride. It's the whole bride. And I think there's wisdom in that. So then what would it mean when the writer of Hebrews would say, well, we won't see God if we're not faithful. If we don't pursue a life of faithfulness, we'll not see God. Let me show you a couple of Old Testament texts that perhaps solve the issue. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 3, if you would, please. Zechariah chapter 3. Let's go there first. Then I'm going to take you to one in Ezekiel. In Zechariah chapter 3. And I want you to notice what we read in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you'll walk in my ways, and if you'll perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now, what I understand that to mean is if you were to purpose to be faithful, when you got back here with the Lord and you were faithful in learning the scriptures and applying the scriptures, you're going to have, or that kind of person who feared the Lord and walked in his ways will have free access to seeing the Lord. Free access in. I mean, it would be like you have free access into the White House. Of course, I'm sorry I compare heaven to the White House. Uh, That's a lousy illustration there, but it's an analogy anyway. Uh, Back up to Ezekiel 44, if you would, please. Ezekiel chapter 44. Let me show you another one. That kind of is along that same theme. In Ezekiel chapter 44, I want to draw your attention to verse 10 
Because the Lord is talking about kingdom things here, but the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house, they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of the iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I've sworn against them, declares the Lord God, they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear the shame for their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house of all of its service, and all shall be done in it. So I would suspect the penalty for someone who is a believer who wasn't faithful, just trusted the Lord, but lived their life dominated by the flesh, they'll probably come back at this glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there will be a penalty during that millennial phase and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that they're not going to have the kind of access they could have had to Jesus Christ that they would have had had they been faithful. Now, after John wrote that down, the angel says to him in verse 9, at the end of verse 9 of Revelation 19, these are true words of God. So he again stresses the fact, these are the true words of God. God said, I want you to understand my word is broken down into words. You see that? Words. That's why I don't think you can ever understand the Bible by leapfrogging around it. You just can't do it. You have to go through the words, which certainly this right here would merit. Well then, after this happens, John, verse 10 says, then... After I saw these hallelujah services, then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, according to verse 10, John, who's been listening to all of this and watching over this, became so overwhelmed with this that he fell down at the feet of the angel to worship the angel. I mean, apparently heaven must be just overwhelming for John to do this. It must be overwhelming what he saw and what he heard. I mean, John apparently couldn't hardly wait to get in the action of worship himself because he's been just writing this stuff down and going along looking at it and observing it. And now he just falls down when he hears these hallelujah choruses. And the question that would come to your mind is, now, how could John make a mistake like that? I mean, at least it would cause you to think about this. How in the world could John, who's been in heaven since chapter 4, when the angel said, come up here, and he sees that throne of God, and he sees the Lamb, how in the world could he make such a mistake in heaven and worship an angel? And he doesn't just goof up once. Flip over to chapter 22, he does it again. Chapter 22. And notice verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. He said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. 
He goofs up again. Now, how in the world can that happen? I mean, John is the last living apostle on the face of this earth. John is the one who wrote the heady writing of the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which talks about worship God. How in the world do you make that mistake when you're in heaven? And the only conclusion is... He was so overwhelmed with what is going on here, so overwhelmed with the fact of this glorious program about to take over the world that he just for a minute lost his mind, or as it were, he let his emotions get the best of him, and he fell down in heaven. He's in heaven, and he falls down and worships an angel. Well, this angel, he's not about to accept that. I mean, this angel's going to straighten John out, John making kind of a a mistake here, but this angel's not going to let him get away with this and not going to let him think that he deserves worship at all. The angel says to him, don't do that. Hey, I'm a created being, an angel. I'm a created being, just like you're a created being. You don't worship a created being. Don't do that, John. I'm your fellow servant. Now think about that. I'm your fellow servant. I'm the fellow servant of yours. Think about this, because there are big differences between us and angels. Big differences between us and angels, but we have this common denominator among both of us. And that is, if we're in the family of God, we're both servants of God. That's the job of an angel. That's our job. There may be differences among us and the angels, but there also is a symmetry between us in that we're all servants. Then he said, I'm your relative. He said, and I'm your fellow servant of yours and your brethren. So I'm connected to you the same way the family of God's connected to you. I'm just part of the family, as it were, the family of God. And then he says, I'm like you and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm your fellow servant and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why we're all here, John. We're all here because of Jesus Christ. None of us are here because of anything we did. We're here because of him. And then he says, worship God. Worship God. And then he wraps it up by saying, Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, what he's basically saying, John, you need to know this. Everything you're writing down here is about the prophetic program of God, and the prophetic program of God is all about Jesus Christ. And if you ever hear someone talking about prophecy and they're trying to take the focus off of Jesus Christ in prophecy, it's a wrong interpretation. Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. He is the prophetic program of God. He's the one who will carry it out. He's the second member of the Trinity. Verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I ask this question tonight. Do you have your invitation? You get that invitation from one person. That one person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get the invitation to go to this tremendous scene that we're looking at in the scriptures that we will see in living color one day. You get that invitation by believing on him, inviting him into your life. If you've never done that, you do it now. Let's pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, settle it tonight. Just do honest business with the Lord. Invite him in to take over your life. Heavenly Father, what a spectacular book this is. What a spectacular moment this is, Lord. We can't wait 
to see this, Lord. And if John had this little lapse as an apostle, the fret that we have is that when we're there and we watch everything, we'll fall into the same thing. Lord, but I pray we would stay riveted. I pray we would stay focused on Jesus Christ in this life and in the next. In Jesus' name, amen.